welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Matthew Sorensen from the University of Washington talking about personal finances. I am excited to talk about this topic today. I think it's an area where we have um, not always done a great job of um, in the in the prospect of preparing residents to to actually independently perform um, and practice once they're all said and done. I think this is an area that um, doesn't come naturally to a lot of folks, and at least for me personally, were uh, things that. Uh, most of which I learned uh, after uh, my residency was completed and as I as I stumbled through things as a new faculty member. Um, I don't have anything to disclose that's related to this talk, uh, but I do have a couple disclaimers. Um, the first is that this is mainly a talk about how I invest and manage finances. Um, there are, I'm certain, other people that would argue with uh, many of the things that uh, I'll discuss as as being the uh, what I view to be the best pathway forward, um, and so take that with a grain of salt. I'm also not a financial advisor or an investment advisor, and so um, please don't constitute this as financial advice. Um, but I do think that in a lot of cases, uh, it can be quite valuable to meet with a professional. I'll talk about that a little bit at the end. And so, if you have a complex situation, or um, if you uh, don't want to learn some of this on your own, then uh, it's a great idea to, to meet with an expert uh, and a professional who does this every day. So uh, you have spent half your lifetime preparing to practice medicine. And in general, especially in urology, we get compensated very well because what we do is, is very challenging. Um, the, especially as uh, you enter into practice, some of the things that you do now and the habits that you develop can have huge consequences for your long-term ability and timing to, to retire and to develop wealth. And so the earlier you can develop some of these habits and uh, start to do some of these um, investments that we'll talk about, then the, the better off you'll be. There are uh, a number of, I think, keys to developing wealth, but I tried to distill this down to the to the five probably most important things to do. And some of these things are uh, things you should be doing even as a resident or, or, and even now. And others are things that uh, you might not have the means to do until you get to be a little bit uh, further along and, and actually into practice when, you're, uh, when your salary and your income will, will grow and, and be larger than it is now. Uh, but these are some of the five things that we're gonna talk about with a little bit more detail. So the first is, is I think from an overarching standpoint, it's a good to have a written financial plan. Uh, and as you go through life and practice, you will have um, some sort of predictable uh, things that will come along the pathway. And so most folks follow this sort of arc of um, their finances and preparation for retirement. And that's, that's the ultimate goal is to be uh, financially independent such that uh, you can retire and not have to compromise your um, your lifestyle and the way that you uh, uh, spend money and and the things that you like to do now uh, once you're ultimately finished so 
I think uh, this is sort of having a plan of uh, what you would work uh, for how you're going to invest, how much you're going to invest, how that's going to be broken down. When do you rebalance your portfolio? When do you uh, uh, make certain purchases and, and, and those sorts of things, and then really trying to stick to that financial plan. Uh, and some of the things that we'll talk about today would, would be elements that would, that would naturally go into a financial plan. There are some things that you certainly should do in probably a particular order as your uh, income uh, starts to grow. And I think uh, in general, there, uh, this sort of pyramid is a good representation of which things you should be doing first um, and, and then second and then third and so on and so forth. Uh, and, um, and which, where you should route your resources and your, your investments, uh, as you, as you start this process. And then once you get to a place where you have taken care of many of the things that are on this list, uh, each year, then, then you would migrate to the next one. One of the first keys is to have an emergency fund. Uh, I think that should be either cash or something that's easily sold and, and able to be liquid, uh, something that, that you can get to very quickly um, and that could float you for um, somewhere between three and six months. Uh, of, and so you could develop a budget and look at what you tend to spend on things, take into account all the expenses that you have and try to have at least three months and, and even as long as six months of that put away. Uh, and that's probably the first thing you should do. Um, the, this pandemic is, um, has really been eye-opening, I think, because a lot of physicians felt like a position in healthcare, uh, was really immune to a lot of the market forces that would lead to somebody, uh, you know, losing a job or, or those sorts of things. But, but other things can happen as well. You know, you can have a medical emergency that comes up or, or any sort of unexpected expense. You can have, um, you know, a flood or damage or, or things like that that happen to your home. Um, you, uh, most folks, if they are, um, if they have a significant other and are pooling their resources, your your significant other may not be sheltered from things uh, like we often are in healthcare. And even within healthcare, at UW, there are some of the uh, administrative staff and and uh, and such that are uh, being asked to to be furloughed. And so you you often hear from people that are in practice, physicians that are in practice through this that. Um, they their income drops unexpectedly and so having this money around is is really important so that uh you can survive uh an emergency once you have that taken care of then i think the next thing that's really important is to have a clear plan for your debt uh, there are some of these things that uh fall into what you should do as a resident and then as a as a new faculty member or a new attending the the first and foremost is to eliminate credit card debt uh, the anything that has an interest rate or a, or a loan that is a higher percentage you should really be targeting first uh, even before you invest some of the money uh, into uh, into a into a retirement plan or an investment um, the rates on credit cards are are crazy as everybody knows and um, you can spend a lot of additional money just on the interest that goes towards those credit cards so trying to pay those off quickly 
and first is advisable. And if you can do it as a resident, that's, that's a, a good plan. Um, you know, credit cards should not really be used to develop credit and uh, you, you really should develop a habit of paying off your credit card completely every month uh, so that you don't have to carry that balance because the interest rates are crazy. Um, the next is to have a plan about your student loans. So the 2018 AUA resident census, which was the last time that they asked, showed that about 27% of residents owed more than $250,000. There's another 27% that owed between 150 and $250,000. And it's shocking to me that actually 22% didn't have any student loans. Um, so for, but if you're in that group like, like I was, where uh, you had significant loans, uh, either for you or you and your partner, you really need to make a plan about whether you're going to pursue one of the forgiveness programs that I'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, and if you're not, then to refinance and to make a goal off these student loans as quickly as you can. Right now, they're, for anybody who has uh, federal loans, the, uh, they're not accruing interest and the requirement for payments have been suspended for a period of time. Um, but once you refinance those, once you consolidate those, um, the, the, the goal should be to find the lowest possible rate that you can and to pay them off as quickly as you can. It's also, uh, you know, almost cliche that a lot of folks, when they finish their training, they uh, buy the new fancy car or they move to a new city and um, take on a really big mortgage. The, you have become accustomed to spending a certain amount of money based on your resident salary, uh, which for most people is somewhere, you know, less than $100,000, but more than 60, somewhere in that ballpark. And your income is going to increase uh, pretty dramatically over the first year or two that you're in the practice. And that is a perfect time to continue to spend conservatively and to try to save money and to pay off uh, these these high interest loans and your student loans. So um, continue to drive that uh, you know modest or crappy car that you have. Um, and even if you're going to relocate, uh, I think you can look at uh, a lot of these things as sort of a um, a reward for for paying off your loans. So if you can, you know, a lot of folks will try to not buy a home and not buy the fancy car uh, until uh, their student loans are paid off. The other thing um, that is also worth talking about is you can, uh, th this is probably true over the course of your whole investing career. Uh, you um, need to be vigilant about where you're, you're con where you are conservative with your finances. And um, there, are, there are lots of folks who are who nickel and dime all along the way only to overspend on a home. Uh, and, and then to be house poor and to have a mortgage that consumes a, a really large amount of uh, their monthly uh, income and, and that income that they can spend. Um, it also is worthwhile to uh, splurge and keep your spouse or significant other happy because that is money that is very well spent uh, because divorce uh, can be exceptionally expensive. Uh, and uh, fortunately, physicians, especially physicians who marry physicians, have divorce rates that are quite a bit lower than the general public. But uh, that, that's another area where, uh, you know, skimping and being thrifty uh, to the detriment of your, of your life partner is, is not advised. The, the other thing is that um, as you prepare for uh, having a higher income, 
it, it's also important to be aware that your credit score um, can impact the interest rates that you'll get on loans for things like a car and a home, um, if, and sometimes can prevent you from being able to get one. This has a list of some of the things that are uh, taken into account by uh, the credit score companies when they determine uh, what your credit score is. And so your, your payment history, which essentially means, you know, do you pay off uh, your things on, on time or do you have late payments or have you ever defaulted on, on a loan or a credit card or those sorts of things um, can, be, can have a huge impact on your credit score. Uh, there, other than having something that is um, not true wiped off your credit score, uh, or your credit report, um, it, it, it takes slow, steady progress to improve your, your credit score. So this is more of a marathon than it is a sprint. Um, and so, you know, making sure that you have um, some debt that you, uh, or some loans that you have made regular payments on uh, can be helpful. And having uh, an account or two that is um, older, even if you're not using it regularly, is also uh, advisable. So, in thinking about your student loans, I debated about not including really much of anything about student loans since this was more about your personal finances, but they really are so related that uh, it's difficult to not uh, at least include them to some degree. Um, student loans, I think, you know, they come in a couple different categories. The private loans don't really have the opportunities for these different repayment programs for the most part. And so any private loans that um, you took out in order to um, go interview all over or, or really for any other reason, um, you should really try to refinance those to the lowest rate possible and try to make um, some payments to them during residency. Residency is like five to six years long, um, plus if you do any additional training after that, um, and to just allow those loans to accumulate interest um, um, really be problematic once you finish, they can, they can grow and be quite a bit more difficult to, to pay off. For your federal loans, um, there's definitely some, some choices about how to pursue this. And, and this is probably the area of the talk where, I'm the, uh, where I have the least experience. Um, but in general, there uh, are, you, you should consider an income-driven repayment plan. And there's a couple of them. Um, they're nuanced and there's lots of uh, really slight differences between them. Uh, they also uh, have changed and there are new programs that have come on uh, over the last couple of years. But in general, um, these income-driven repayment plans are, uh, are, are a, good, a good pathway um, because they allow you to still uh, preserve the opportunity for a forgiveness program, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Um, the, they each have sort of a different way of calculating um, what your payment would be. Uh, and in general, they're, they're mostly capped um, at uh, what your, um, at, at a maximum number and, and they're based on your discretionary income. So there's some strategies that you can take to make your discretionary income actually be a smaller number um, and such that your payments are smaller uh, and there are some slight differences. But in general, um, you know, most folks are, are gonna be best served by either the, um, the pay or the repay program. And most folks end up in the pay program if you don't qualify for this subsidy. Um, and that, that happens either because your, uh, your family income, uh, often due to a high earning spouse, is too high or the amount of debt you have is, is, is too low. So um, if, if you're single and you qualify for it, most folks um, pursue the repay program because the interest that you would be charged is subsidized. And so that um, uh, can be beneficial for the loan. 
Now, when you get to a place of repayment, then you really have a couple choices. When, when you get to a place where you're finished and, and now uh, you're, uh, you're, you're in the process of trying to repay your loans, you have to, there's sort of a fork in the road where you, where you have to decide if you're gonna pursue a forgiveness program or if you're gonna pursue repayment. Um, the uh, repayment programs that, that come through the federal government oops, sorry, are, are often not um, very favorable, so I'm going to talk about those in just a minute, but the standard repayment is a 10-year repayment. So they take whatever your, owned, your owed amount is, they, uh, they uh, include what your interest rate is, and then they divide it out such that you'd make payments and have it paid off within 10 years. You can, you can switch that to an extended program, which allows you to repay over about 25 years. Um, and, and then you can always uh, take your loans uh, out of the federal repayment programs and go, uh, you can consolidate them and then refinance them and then uh, set a term actually that is uh, anywhere between five and 20 years. Oftentimes these have lower rates with shorter terms. So if you, if you commit to having payments such that you re repay your loans within five years, your, your interest rate is often quite a bit lower, um, but that results in much higher monthly payments. So there's um, some balance that you have to find there. And in general, I would say try to, if, if you do go this route, try to find a, a, a number that's a monthly number that is, that is a little bit conservative because you can always pay extra on these you don't want to end up in a place where um, you commit to a five-year repayment and and then you um, you get to a place where you you can't make a payment because it's just too large now there are a couple of forgiveness programs um, it really there's many of them that are that are have big problems and so there's a couple things you need to be aware of um, and again this is just sort of a cursory uh, uh, covering, but if, if you started out in the income-based repayment and then you continue on that income-based repayment and you make uh, 25 years of payments, then you get uh, the remainder of your loan balance forgiven. But remember that the, the, the payment is set up so that you're paying over 10 years. So oftentimes the loans would already be paid off. And then a big problem is, is that when you do have the loan be forgiven that counts as it's taxed as income ordinary income so you you, you oftentimes if if you structure this correctly and you have a large amount forgiven the tax consequences can be giant um, and so that that is not a great forgiveness plan uh, the same is true for the pay program um, so you can be in the pay program through residency but to be in it long term is uh, is is not typically advisable because you have the same, you have the same pro problem where your the loans are sometimes paid off. They are capped, which is nice, but anything that's forgiven is taxed as income. And so, so that is also not a great program. Uh, one of the problems with the repay program is that it's not capped. And so when they figure out um, the amount of what your monthly payment is gonna be, um, it can, uh, substantially uh, increased from what it would be in one of these other programs because it's based on again your your discretionary income and so in a high-paying field like urology your um, your payment can be uh, can increase dramatically and be really high and again the forgiveness is taxed and and so all three of those programs in terms of forgiveness are, are not great programs 
Um, and so that really essentially leaves the uh, public service loan forgiveness program. Uh, and there's some nuances to this one, but it results in um, uh, tax-free forgiveness. And so the strategy with a forgiveness plan is to have your loan when you finish, how you want that that's forgiven to be as large as possible because it means that you, you over the lifetime of the repayment of the loan, you paid the least amount into it. Um, and and the, the PSLF is the only one where the forgiveness is tax-free. So that's, that's huge. There are some things you definitely need to be aware of. Um, you essentially have to work full-time, which means 30 hours a week. And so if your intent is to graduate and then work part-time, um, that this program doesn't work great for you. You have to um, work, you have to make uh, 120 payments, which means 10 years of payments, um, and be working and have your income uh, become a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, and uh, that means your actual um, income comes from that nonprofit. If you work in a private practice and cover a nonprofit hospital, but your salary comes through, your uh, private practice, that does not count. The program also uh, administratively has uh, some, some trouble and they, uh, it's only over the last year or so, year or two, that people have actually been able to try and get forgiveness in this program. And their uh, logistics of having them participate in, in knowing that you made uh, these payments is is terrible, and so you really the onus goes to you to make sure that you're keeping proof of every one of these payments that you make on time. Um, so essentially, how this should work out is that when you're a resident, you know you want an income contingent uh, or or some sort of income based uh, program that's based on your discretionary income, and then if you think PSLF is possible, um, then uh, then you want to switch to the pay program um, as an attending and then go for the public uh, student loan, forg loan forgiveness program. Um, now, some of the things that make that possible, you know, in urology programs are five and six years. That counts towards the 10 years or 120 payments that you need to make. If you do a fellowship beyond that, you conceivably could be eight years into this process. Um, of the 10 years that you need to do and then and then you'd have two years where you'd be in the pay program and you'd be paying at a higher rate for your discretionary income but you could have 80 percent of the payments done by the time you get into practice but you ultimately do have to get into practice and and really it means either an academic job a hospital employed position at 5013c you can work in the va that counts and you also um, if you work in the military that that meets the requirement as well if you think it's not likely and you're going to take a private practice position, then really the goal should be to refinance your loans and to pay them off as quickly as you can. Uh, so there's, I'm going to transition here just a little bit. There's sort of two phases of wealth. The first is you are accumulating wealth and then in the end you end up retired and hopefully have lots of money to spend. Um, if you think about um, the, the amount of money that you're going to make, which the average is around $400,000 a year uh, for fitting into practice. There's some variation for sure, depending on if you're in an urban area or rural and definitely by geography. But in general, the um, starting salary is somewhere around $400,000 for uh, new colleges. Your goal should be to save about 20% of your gross income. And the interesting thing is, is if you, these percentages, um, 
tend to work even if your income is less. So if your income is, uh, is you work half time, so it's only $200,000 or, you know, you're married to a neurosurgeon and, and your income is, is closer to a million dollars a year. These percentages work out in, you know, what your, uh, what you have, uh, when you, when you finish and when, when you're coming into retirement and what you can survive on. And so in general, um, you know, you have to remember that you don't get to keep all $400,000. Uh, you only get to keep a portion of it. And, and you can plan on having about 20% of your gross income be directed towards uh, retirement and saves um, in different methods that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, about uh, often, some of those are, are reduce your income that's taxable. Um, but nonetheless, if you make about $400,000, you end up spend, you know, paying about $100,000 in taxes, which is crazy, but true. Um, you allocate, you can allocate about 15% of your gross income towards your mortgage. Um, the, that, how much your mortgage is, mortgage is obviously depends a lot on um, where you live. Um, but about a $60,000 a year mortgage, um, gets you about a million dollar house. Um, if you bring a down payment, so somewhere in that ballpark. Um, so that 15% might be less in some places and it might be more in others. And then that leaves you with about 40% of your income to be what you live on, um, about $160,000. Um, now, when you get to retirement, you have the benefit of um, uh, you can figure out what you sort of need to survive on. So that, that $400,000, you don't need to save the 20% anymore. So that, that makes that starting point um, about $80,000. Uh, your taxes are much lower because um, your the amount of income that you're generating much less. Oftentimes, that's money that's coming out of your um, retirement, but you can plan on uh, a rate that's about 15% instead of 25%. Um, your mortgage may be gone completely at that point, but if you retire early, you may have um, some mortgage expenses uh, um, that you have left over, and and that leaves you with a lifestyle to survive in retirement uh, that's about 6% of what your gross income was before you retired. And most uh, programs would say, most books would say that um, you should aim for about a 60 to 80% of your pre-retirement income. And uh, that will allow you to do all the things that you do when you're retired. You can still travel and you can still take trips and um, all, all the things that you like to do now. Now. Um, that doesn't all have to come from your retirement account. If you take that $240,000 that you're going to live on, which is about 60% of your pre-retirement gross income, some of that comes from social security. And so uh, on average, uh, assuming that it exists when we get to that place, you know, social security nets about $44,000 a year. And you end up with um, about $200,000 that you'd be pulling out of your your uh, uh, retirement account on, on an annual basis. Now, some of that is gonna go to taxes. Um, uh, so about $46,000 of it would go to taxes. And then you end up with this number that's about $194,000 to live on, um, or call it $200,000 to live on, um, which most folks can, can live just fine on that amount. Now, if you take that $200,000, how much do you need? Um, and, 
And most of the advice would say that you need about 25 times whatever your that number is for you. And so if it's $200,000 that you are going to plan to pull out of your retirement account, then uh, you and you're going to be retired for about 30 years, then you need about 25, 25 times that much or about $5 million. Um, now, obviously, if you uh, th this number um, is going to be different for everybody. Um, and some people will require more and some will require less. Um, and, but that, that at least gives you a ballpark of what to, to shoot for. Um, now, the nice thing is that you eventually get to a place where your retirement account has enough money in it. And if it is continuing to grow, this 4% withdrawal that you do each year, that's about $200,000, is, is actually about what the account makes, or sometimes it's even less than what the account makes. And so as you get closer to retirement, it's often um, uh, nice to see that your, the amount of money that goes into your retirement account just from it growing on its own can be more than your salary, can be more than your income. Um, I have not yet experienced that, but, uh, but I look forward to it. Now, how, where do you, how do you save the money. What, where do you do with the amount of money that you're going to save? This, this 20% of your gross income, which is about $80,000, where does that go? And um, this is where it gets to be a little bit of sort of alphabet soup. Um, and, and knowing some of the terminology is important. So first, a pre-tax contribution means that money comes out of your gross income before taxes are applied. Uh, this is really beneficial, especially when your incomes get higher because it reduces the amount of your income that has to be taxed. And so your taxable income gets reduced. It also means that if you're going to contribute the same amount, that if, if you're going to set aside, you know, 5,000 or whatever the amount is, um, that money um, doesn't, doesn't decrease before it gets into the account. If the money gets taxed and you use it after tax, um, you, you have less money to put in or it costs more to put it in. And you want that money to be in the account as early as possible so it can start to grow and um, compound the interest. And I'll show you some examples of that in just a minute. Um, now, during the um, time that it's growing uh, and, and you have an investment, um, there are two things that sometimes happen with it. So capital gains is, is essentially uh, a term that's used for whatever change in value value you have in, a, in a, an equity that you've purchased, so a stock or a mutual fund. And so the gain would be, you know, I bought it at $10 and now it's worth $12 and so the gains would be $4 for each share. Um, those do not get applied until you sell it. And so um, those are not, not realized and, and the actual gain is not, um, doesn't have any impact on your taxes or your income until you actually sell uh, the whatever the item is, the equity. Um, that's important because capital gains get taxed in a different way than uh, income and some of these other things. Now, dividends, on the other hand, those are um, periodic payments that come from some investments where they give uh, essentially um, profit, they share it with the shareholders. And so it's usually a small amount of money for each um, share of stock that's owned. And um, you can either automatically reinvest that or you can, um, you can withdraw it and use it. But every time a dividend happens, if it's in a taxable account, if it's not in like a 401k or a 403b, then that's a taxable event. And so those get accumulated and they get filed under taxes each year. 
And then a withdrawal is when you take the money out. Um, so that's when you get into retirement um, or if you have some sort of an emergency hand, um, it's when you, when you are taking money out of one of these retirement accounts. So there's uh, a bunch of different choices um, and they're nuanced and there are definitely some differences between them. And so uh, most people when they start um, in a position or and even as a resident, there is a 401k or a 403b um, retirement option. Um, and those are uh, uh, pre-tax money. So money comes out of your check. You never see it. Um, it does not next in that account as it grows and there's dividends and there's um, uh, uh, any, any growth on the, on the money. But then when you withdraw the money, then it does get taxed. So in most of these cases, you get taxed one place or another. The benefit of being taxed later is that you're not making 400,000 a year at that point. You're getting, you're, you're withdrawing less um, and living on less. And so the amount of tax you actually pay is, is less. Um, now there's also IRAs. Those are also um, come out pre-tax. There are some limits on how much you can contribute based on what your income is. They also, the growth is not taxed and then um, it does get taxed when you withdraw. A health savings account is sort of a stealth version of an IRA. You pull pre-tax money out. Um, it doesn't get taxed during uh, as it grows, and then it does get taxed when you withdraw it if you use it for non-healthcare reasons. But if you use retirement for healthcare, then it's not taxed. So some people say that it, that an HSA is triple tax advantage because for that reason, it doesn't get taxed when you um, are contributing it. It doesn't get taxed when it grows, and it doesn't get taxed when you use it if you use it on healthcare. Um, now there's also Roth versions of an IRA and these are after tax money. Um, they, so you make, you earn your $400,000, you, uh, get taxed a certain amount and then the money that you actually get in your paycheck, um, you can contribute to a Roth IRA. This also has a limit to it. Um, it is not taxed during growth. And then the benefit of a Roth IRA is that it's not taxed when you withdraw money because you've already paid the tax on it. Um, there's also a 401k version of a Roth as well that has that same sort of setup. And so you can decide if you want your 401k to be a traditional 401k or a Roth 401k. There are books entirely and, and chapters of other books that are written on this specific question of which do you do for your 401k, a traditional or Roth version. Um, and there's tons of variables and nuances that go into it. And so, um, but in general, uh, most experts would say that in your low income years where you're, the amount you get taxed is gonna be low, that's a reasonable uh, time to use a Roth uh, vehicle like this. And when you have high income years, so when you're, when you're in your peak earning years, then you really want to um, defer and do and use the pre-tax money. And then the last thing is a taxable account. So uh, there's nothing that stops anybody from, uh, once you've done some of these other things that have limits, that to contribute additional money to a Fidelity or Vanguard or, or whatever taxable account. And um, in those cases, you are uh, contributing after-tax money um, you get taxed on the dividends um, when those when those happen, and then when you start to withdraw some of the money, or if you make any, um, if you sell any of the stocks, then you have to pay tax on on those gains. Uh, once when you actually are pulling the money out, then you, then you don't. But you do have to sell uh, the the items to in order to to use them.
Now there are, so how do you fill this savings bucket, right? So we talked about how we're gonna contribute around $80,000 a year. That sounds like a lot. Um, and there's a bunch of different ways to do it. So um, the, the first is uh, to use your uh, 401k or 403b, and those have a limit of 19.5 for an individual. Um, there's, uh, you can contribute a little bit more. It's like 6,000 or 6,500 more. If you're over the age of 50, they call it catch up. And again, if you have an account and your significant other has an account, you both can do this 19.5. Uh, oftentimes employers will have a match and so if you contribute to this and say they'll match up to 5% of your of your salary for example um, but the maximum that you get to including what you put in and your employer is $50,000 there's some leeway there for that to be a little higher if you're um, if you're over 50. Um, an IRA or a Roth IRA has a $6,000 limit um, and your taxable account you can Put as much as you want the sky is the limit for that um, you also uh, if, if you make over about hundred and thirty thousand um, dollars automatically money comes out of your um, your check to support Social Security until you hit that maximum number so about seventeen thousand dollars goes into your uh, Social Security um, and then uh, uh, there's a couple of other ones. I put, I put these others in because they're not always available. And, and um, you know, for example, a pension, there's few, there are some places that still have a pension, but they're more uh, uncommon now than, than they were before. Um, but a 457B is a, is a special um, deferred income program. They come in two big buckets of either a government or a non-governmental. Um, a governmental one is very safe and um, you can contribute another 19.5 to that. Um, and essentially you give the money into that account, you, you direct it towards some sort of an investment and then you can, you get, um, you basically defer your salary, you get paid later on. Um, though the governmental ones are um, sort of insured and, uh, and have, uh, um, they're backed basically. Uh, but the ones that are non-governmental, the 457 plan, if a company, a giant company, you'd feel more safe with, but if they declared bankruptcy or went out of business, then um, that, that money could be lost. So a non-governmental one, there is some risk there. You have to decide what the likelihood is of that happening. Um, and then your health savings account, you can contribute 35, a little over $3,500 um, towards that as well. Now, the, the fourth key is you want to maximize all the tax-protected retirement accounts, um, including and especially for the matching. So these are done sort of in order. And when you're a, whether you're a resident or an attending, if you're, uh, the company you work for offers a match, you should do whatever it takes to maximize that match. That is free money. Um, even if you turn around at the end of your training and liquidate your uh, retirement plan, which you shouldn't do, but if you had to, you're, they have given you 5% for nothing and you have to pay a penalty and there's taxes and all, all these other consequences, but you always take free money. Um, and then the next step, which you might be able to do as a resident, probably not, but as, a, as an attending, you want to try and maximize um, whatever your retirement uh, plan is going to be whether it's a, a 401k or a 403b is is um, what what I have done and I'm, and I would most do it saves on what your taxes will be and it allows you to have amount of money that goes into your account um, to to start uh, contributing 
Um, but you got to have the money to be able to afford to set aside 19.5. So that's more of when you get into practice. Now, a backdoor Roth I'll talk about in just a minute, but um, that's uh, uh, sort of the next step uh, in, in the attending world um, in that the hierarchy or the triangle that I showed before. The nice thing about a backdoor Roth is that um, it's tax-free growth and tax-free withdrawal. And I'll talk about that, um, I think, in the next slide or one after that. Um, and then consider a health savings account if that works, if that works for you. And so if you do the math, then what it means is that to get to that $80,000 a year, you withhold your uh, 401k or 403b, you maximize the match that you'd get from your, uh, your business that you work for, your, your hospital that you work for. You uh, do a backdoor Roth each year, that's 6,000. You might use an HSA, you might not. Um, and then you have you know, around $30,000 that plus or minus a bit that you would contribute in a taxable account. And so with an income that's in the $400,000 range, that taxable account becomes a move that we as urologists probably should move to uh, earlier and, and might move to earlier than folks who have an income that's a bit lower. So there you go, then you get to your $80,000 a year. Now let's talk a little bit about um, timing. So I've got a couple graphs here that show the differences of when you invest and and sorts of things and so this is a graph that has four lines on it and so on the bottom is the number of years that you're investing and on the left side is how that money grows and so this is just an example of investing five thousand dollars a year which again we're talking about investing way more than that um, and if you invest it for 30 years uh, like many of your college buddies who got into business at age 25, um, they have um, a, the, the most favorable growth curve. If you're like most physicians where you're entering into that world closer to age 35, you're already starting out way behind. And so to, if you're going to invest over that same time period um, to say 30 years, you know, you're going to retire somewhere between 55 and 65 then you know you end up with a really big difference um, just by waiting 10 years that 10 years of compounded growth is results in you know a 2.3 fold difference in the amount of money and that 2.3 fold this is only a five thousand dollar example so if you just use the 19.5 for example um, it's still two and a half three 2.3 times different between the two. And if you wait, if you finish your training and then you delay and say, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to hold off, then the difference is even more dramatic. So this is obviously, you know, a 20-year delay, and which which none of us should do, but the, the effect that has on how you finish with is really dramatic. Now, interestingly, if you look at, you um, can't change where we are, right? We're in this, we're in this, going to finish residency at about this 10 years after you know our colleagues for example if you look at what how difficult it is to catch up it, you have to invest about 11 about 115 or 2.3 fold more um, if you start 10 years late to catch up by that overall 30-year time period so to get that steeper slope you have to invest a whole bunch more you know more than double um, just by starting 10 years late. And so really trying to make sure that you start to invest as soon as you can, even if it's a small amount, uh, is beneficial because the longer that money sits in that account, the better off you're going to be. Um, now, 
this is an example of, of the difference between pre-tax money and post money. So uh, assuming that um, you uh, that you invest in something like the S&P 500, which um, performs about 7% after inflation, um, and you invest $5,000 a year for 30 years, um, you have these these three scenarios. So the $150,000 is you just put it in a piggy bank, right? You, you stash it in the mattress or put it in your closet and it doesn't have any chance to grow. Um, if you put it in a pre-tax account, then you generate about 28% more money at that 30 year time period than if you use the same $5,000 and you pay taxes on it first because uh, the amount of money that goes in is just less. Um, and so there's a, there's a benefit of using the pre-tax money. Um, now the, the difference is, is when you finish, as you pull money out of that um, pre-tax account, you do have to pay taxes on it. But at least for the growth, uh, doing it pre-tax is beneficial. Now the backdoor Roth is a little complicated. Um, I think when I first heard about it, I thought it was like this one step thing, but it really isn't. Um, for the most part, we don't really, uh, uh, qualify because of our income to do a Roth IRA or a post-tax Roth IRA um, because our incomes are just too high. And so there's these different categories for what your income is, but we pretty quickly get into this high income group, um, which essentially you're allowed to make an IRA contribution uh, of about $6,000. Uh, and and you can leave it in an IRA. Uh, it's after-tax money, um, and so it grows tax-free. Um, but then it gets uh, the the growth gets taxed in retirement, um, uh, and it does end up with um, you know being in a lower tax bracket. But one of the things that the government has allowed us to do, which I think every year when they revise the tax code, there's some fear that this is going to go away, is once a year you can make a conversion of this $6,000 from an IRA to a Roth IRA. And by having it be in a Roth IRA, you now have it grow tax-free. There's no taxes when you withdraw and there's no penalties if you withdraw early from it. Um, and so it's limited to $6,000 a year. And this number changes like many of the others do. Um, but this is something that you can do once you can afford it. Um, once a year for, for both you and, and your spouse or significant other uh, can both do it. And the first year that you can do it, if you do it early enough in the year, you can actually allocate it to the year prior. So we're too late. Well, actually we are still okay this year because taxes aren't due until July. But if you did this today, you could make a contribution into your IRA, allocate it as your 2019 contribution, and then roll it over into your Roth IRA. And then you could the very next day do the same thing and, and designate it as your 2020 contribution. Um, I'm not going to talk a ton about health savings account. You know, the, a lot of employers like to use them because they're, um, the premiums are less costly. Um, but one of, the, one of the benefits of a health savings account is that uh, unlike a flexible spending account or an FSA, you have to be careful, these are different. You, you essentially, you choose your health insurance to be a high deductible plan, and then you can do an HSA. You can contribute uh, a little over $3,500 a year that's pre-tax, and sometimes, uh, actually oftentimes, your employer will contribute to that as well, um, to contribute towards the, um, any of the uh, out-of-pocket costs that you might have. Um, and it, it functions just like uh, a, an IRA, basically. Um, the catch is, is that you, you really should decide if this is the right insurance plan for you first. 
you know, if you have a bunch of kids or if you use healthcare a lot, if you have a chronic issue, chronic medical issue or someone in your, in your immediate family does, um, this is not a great mechanism to use um, just for retirement. But if you have this money and you don't use it on healthcare, it can treat, it accumulates and, and you can designate it towards a, uh, an investment in, in the account, um, just like an IRA. Now, the fifth and the last key point is to invest in um, broad-based index funds. So why do I say that? Um, so you have to decide what you're going to do with all the savings, right? You put this $80,000 into one of a couple different accounts, and you need some sort of a vehicle to invest it in. You have to, you know, the money just sits in like a money market account if you don't um, purchase something with it. And so in general, what you want is you want diverse holdings so that you don't have all your eggs in one basket. You want something that's low cost. Um, you wanna have a plan about what your distribution's gonna be for things. And then you need to rebalance uh, at some interval. For some people that's uh, once a year, for other people it's you know quarterly. And so we're gonna talk about these things just a little bit. Index funds are, um, uh, are, are essentially a collection of stocks in a, in a mutual fund. And Diversity is really important because since the 1920s, all the value in the stock market has come from the top 4% of stocks. And um, nobody knows who these are gonna be. It's, it's essentially like picking lottery numbers. Um, and so the strategy is, is you, you may not have, you know, if you, if you knew which these 4% were, then it would be a home run, right? Cause they would grow like crazy. Um, but the problem is, is that it, they all look the same. It's hard to pick out the winners from, from the ones that are going to hold the course or, or even lose. And so by having an index fund, you own all the stocks in that category. You get their value and you spread out um, all the risk that you accumulate. And so it may not be the home run, but it also is not the strikeout. Now, the other important uh, point is uh, a lot of the index funds are passively managed. Um, and what that means is that there's not a person at a computer saying, oh, you know, I, th I think this stock is really going to be good. Let's pick this one. Um, instead, you base it on something. There's a million choices. You can choose the, all the stock market. You can choose just the S&P 500 pick, all sorts of different sizes and categories of companies. You can pick large value. You can pick um, small growth. Any, all those have different um, index funds. Um, they have some for bonds, they have some foreign uh, classes of, of these titans as well, and then there's even some real estate ones. Um, and the nice thing about choosing something like total market or the S&P 500 is nobody is doing any guessing or math for that. They are, um, those are, it's essentially um, a, a robot. It's, uh, you know, an equation about a program, a, a company comes into the S&P and, and it, the, the mutual fund or ETF or whatever it is, purchases some of that. Um, and so because they're low maintenance, they don't cost very much to run. And so passive funds like a total stock market or, the, or something that mirrors the S&P 500 have very little expense ratios. So expense ratios is, is essentially like a fee or a that um, bridge um, charges. And if you, the more maintenance they're doing, the more they're um, having to um, manage the fund, the, the higher the fees are. And so some active funds or actively managed funds um, have expense ratios that are quite a bit higher. They're um, you know, half a percent, some of them are even over 1%. Um, 
And that drags on your investment because it's a, it's a fee that you have to pay out of that account and you want all that money sitting in the account. Now, another thing you have to be wary of is a program called assets under man. This was a fee structure that was used for a long time at some of the um, companies. And um, basically what it means is whatever you have in your account, they charge some fee every year to take care of it. And so those can be as high as 2%. Most of them are around one or 1.25%. You really want to avoid those because it's, you're essentially, you could be paying someone tens of thousand dollars a year just to, just to make account. So look for low expense ratios and avoid assets under management structures. If you look at, um, this is another graph that shows an example. Again, this is just a $5,000 example over 30 years. If you had a, a, a conservative investment in something like the S&P 500 or something that mirrored that, that makes about 7% a year, and you look at what it would, um, you'd end up with if it's fully managed in the, in the blue, actively managed in the green, or assets under management in the orange, you end up with less money over that time period. And that is all um, just uh, uh, the volume is turned up if you're investing more money in those things. So it can end up being a big difference between them. Uh, and so uh, the other way to perceive it is that um, to have assets under management at a 1.5% be worth it, the investment that they pick would have to be quite a bit better um, than if you invested in, some, in something passively. So a passive, you know, diverse index fund is, is less aggressive, but probably more predictable over the long run. Uh, the last thing is to have a plan. So this goes into your, um, your financial uh, plan that you're going to write down. You can use something like 100% life cycle funds. So this is say, I want to retire it in 2055 or whatever it is. And then um, they, they put together this um, uh, collection of stocks, bonds, et cetera, that are more aggressive when you're young. And then they get more conservative as you get um, closer to the end. These are actively managed. So the prices are just a little bit higher. All of these are different strategies that some people tout as being the, the right way to go. But eventually you have to decide like, how much time do you have until retirement is your risk tolerance? And then you, if you have a distribution like this, that's say 60% stocks and 30% bonds and 10% really, periodically you need to look and see, um, this is how I'm contributing. And then, you know, the stocks are probably gonna grow more than the others. And so, um, you need to rebalance and make sure that you're maintaining whatever the percentages are that you had are the right percentages for you. The last thing is um, don't panic and sell when the market drops. Your perspective should be that everything's on sale. Because um, again, if you have a long uh, term until you're going to need any of this money, um, then you shouldn't be pulling it out um, every time the market drops because you miss the rebounds where it, where it increases as well. Um, if you want to learn more about this, there's a bunch of really good books. Uh, these are these are each really great. The White Coat Investor also has a great podcast and uh, and a blog um, that uh, there's like 150 episodes that uh, some of which are really applicable. Um, if you want to go to a true financial advisor, there's a couple pieces of advice um, that I. Um, so the first is, is uh, ask them how they get paid. And usually an hourly rate or a set fee is a, is a better way than um, a percentage of the things you invest in. Ask them how they feel about these three things. Because if they tell you that whole life insurance is a great plan, um, you should not be listening to them. That, that's a, these are red flags if they um, lean towards these things. 
So these are the take home points. Um, have an emergency fund, save about 20% of your gross income, try to maximize your tax protected accounts and any matching, pay off your high interest loans, have a plan for your loans, um, lean towards passive index funds. Again, that's my bias. Um, and uh, have a, a strategy for how you're gonna um, set up your account and rebalance. Um, and then we didn't really talk much about insurance, but um, having a term insurance plan is a very reasonable thing to do, especially when you're young or very inexpensive. Um, it's probably most important when you have dependents, um, when, you, when you have a, like another or you have kids. Um, and then uh, disability insurance is really important. You know, I could give a whole talk, or actually I couldn't, Dima could, about um, disability insurance and why it's important. But, um, you know, things come up and, and, uh, and uh, you, you want to have uh, uh, disability that's specialty specific. Um, there's often some uh, advantages of having that get set up when you're, uh, when you're still in your residency. Uh, and you never know what's going to happen. Uh, you could have something bad happen, and and then getting insurance is very hard. Um, that's it for me. I'm happy to field any questions. Uh, we'd be to fill out our survey today. We'd um, there's a link here. I'd love um, I'd love the feedback. Thanks a lot, Dr. Sorensen. Just a few quick questions. We've got just a few minutes. Um, Going in order, you, you talked about emergency funds in the beginning and the idea of three to six months expenses. Um, but for residents, I mean, six months would be almost $30,000 or so, which is probably more than any of us have you know ever seen other than when we were taking money and then paying it uh, from a loan to a tuition. Um, and then our jobs are seemingly pretty secure. Um, do, yeah. do you think that that three to six months applies to people when they're in residency? Well, I think, um, you know, you, you probably want to have some put away. Um, I think that, you know, the, the six-month answer is, um, you know, I think it all depends on what your risk tolerance is and what, um, you know, how risky it is that your position or your significant other's position um, could have, you know, could have an episode of unemployment or that they could be laid off. And so I think in residency, because, um the likelihood is that you're that you're you're going to have a position and having about three months is 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 probably important but but that said there are people who um currently are unemployed or or making much less money they uh than than they were even you know five six months ago and i think some of them wish that they had you know they i think some people thought they were essentially immune to it and and it turns out we're probably not not immune yeah. Uh, we we got a few questions just now about that last piece, the disability insurance, and people are wondering yeah. two sort of related things. First, is it important to get it, you know, as a resident, as a fellow, as an attending? What was the timing for you? Um, and then, do you have the the other question was, do you have any specific ones that you recommend, or maybe um, since there's not time to get into that, a, a place that people can go for more information? Yeah, I mean, I think you probably know more about disability insurance than I do. You gave our uh, departmental grand rounds on it, and. Um, I looked into disability insurance as a resident um, and did not do it. I didn't get disability insurance until I was faculty. Um, but I don't, um, you know, I was late to learn a lot of this stuff. So, um, and for I didn't have anything happen where, you know, where I, I didn't have any real medical issues where I would have been disabled, but, but it definitely can happen. Uh, and they're definitely less expensive um, if you get them, if you get them earlier. 
I, so. I think the one thing that I would plug, and you mentioned this also, the White Coat Investor in the blog has a seven-part series on disability insurance. And then at the bottom of that, on every page, there's like a question and answer section where people are asking a lot of really good questions and others who are very knowledgeable going into those. Um, and, and that, I think, is a great resource for anyone who wants to really spend a while figuring this out. Yeah, that's a great Great comment. Well, one last question. Um, wh where do you think people struggle the most with these steps? Like, you know, you outlined this great plan for what we should all be doing in the next five to 10 years. What do, what do you think is like the one biggest pitfall that, that people's come to? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the biggest pitfall is, um, is, is failing to, um, is failing to have a plan, I think. Um, and, and I think, by tuning in today, you take you know everybody that's on this has taken a really good step, right? They're trying to learn more. I think by nature, a lot of physicians are not financially um, all that literate. We're not. It's not. You know, we didn't go to medical school for financial reasons. Usually, you know, we didn't come physicians for that reason. And so it's a it's an area where you know a lot of us don't feel all that comfortable and and don't have a lot of information and and knowledge as a base. Um, I would say of the different steps, the um, there's, you can have pitfalls in all of them, but I think, you know, the, the being aware and trying to get started as early as you can and developing habits is probably the most important. I'd say the biggest thing that I see people do is they graduate and buy really expensive stuff and they transition from, uh, totally surviving on a salary that's, you know, a resident salary to immediately adjusting to a $400,000 salary and not really having that much more money to show for it or savings to show for it. Yeah, L looking forward to having that problem. <laughs> uh, well, thanks again, Dr. Sorensen. Thanks everyone for being here. Yeah, thank uh, you everybody. Remember to take the, the survey at the end um, on the website. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.